Let us now open our Bibles to the 25th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey through uh, the book of Acts. And we're kind of caught up in a number of trials here. And it's easy to lose your place, so I sort of want to bring you up to date before I read the passage before us. In Acts chapters 24 to 26, there's sort of a pivotal stage in the progress of Paul the prisoner from Jerusalem to Rome. Paul has seen a vision in which Christ told him he would go to Rome, but it's taking him a heck of a long time to get there. He's already been a prisoner for two years at this point, though the prison was not abusive, and he did have uh, access to friends and uh, disciples and encouragers. Uh, So we've got a couple of Roman governors, one named Felix. He's out of the scene as we get to chapter 25. He's dead. We don't know how Felix went out, but nothing was said, so it's probably not good. Um, At the same time, Paul is going to appear before Festus today, and then ultimately before Agrippa and Bernice. But today we're going to be focusing on uh, Festus, and he, he's, he's a very politically sensitive kind of governor. He's very deeply concerned. He's sort of doing the dance to cover his backside in every decision he makes because he doesn't, on the one hand, want to offend Jerusalem, who wanted Paul dead. On the other hand, he certainly doesn't want to see rioting and disorder continue with this guy, Paul, who seems to be a stick of dynamite. And so he's, he's in a real catch-22 situation. And he tries to play the hand he's dealt, but as usual, God overrules. And it leads me to ask the question, who's in control anyway? Who's in control of your life? Who's in control of this country? Who's in control of this world, this universe? Who's in control? That's a good question to ask. And there's some scary answers out there. And then there's some answers that give us great hope and assurance. With that said then, sort of setting the table, theologically speaking, when we read these trials, which are really mistrials in many ways, uh, we see a subtext. We see something underneath. And what we see underneath is the sovereignty of our God working out His plan in very unusual, even ironic ways. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he, that is Festus, summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. They wanted him dead. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, so said he, 
Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Hadn't we already been here before? Hasn't all this already happened? And no verdict had been reached? And everybody was sort of scared to touch it? Yet, we see they do it again. After he stayed among them more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Bible. Because the Bible is alive and it speaks to us. It has feet and it runs after us. It has hands and lays hold of us. It is a living, dynamic, powerful, acting word. And we pray today that your word would uh, address us, that it would correct us, it would rebuke us, it would encourage us, it would build us up, it would give us life, it would give us hope, peace, joy, everything our hearts long for. And may you speak especially to us today for the glory of Christ, and we pray in his name, amen. So we got a new governor in town over Judea, and because of that, the Jews saw another opportunity to uh, take the unresolved case that had stalled under Felix and his corrupt administration, and they could receive closure. They saw another opportunity to get this guy whom they passionately hated. And when he reached the province, Festus, of course, plunged into his work immediately. According to Josephus, during his brief tenure, which was about two years, Festus governed fairly and controlled civil unrest. In handling Paul's case, a legacy of his predecessor, he tried to balance the uh, commanding uh, competing demands of justice and political experience. And so three days after he reaches uh, Caesarea, the capital on the Mediterranean coast, he makes a strategic move. He goes to Jerusalem because he's got to play cozy with Jerusalem. And so as a good governor and one who's politically attuned, he makes his trip there and he hears over and over again about this case regarding Paul. 
and that they want him sent back to Jerusalem to face charges. But they knew good and well if he read any of the documents under Felix, he would have known the case had already been tried and the uh, case had not been decided and Paul was still in prison. So they were working him and working every angle to uh, eliminate this troublemaker called Paul. Paul was at the head of the list of unfinished business for this new governor. And so the hostility uh, was there, and despite a two-year lapse uh, since the trial before Felix, the Jewish leaders wanted Paul tried in Jerusalem again. And so they were working every lever to get Festus to do what they wanted him to do, but Festus had a little sensibility about him. He wasn't so easily manipulated. But I want you to know that God had told Paul, you will testify before Rome. He had made that promise in a vision. And I want to tell you something. If God says he's going to do something, nothing can stop him. I want us to think just for a moment, sort of take a side road, and think about the concept of the sovereignty of God. If we clearly examine the Bible, it overtly and clearly and beyond dispute teaches that God is sovereign. God is a great king and he rules above all over everything that he has made. He has foreordained everything that comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's decree and all that he has decreed will most certainly come to pass. God's will of decree cannot be delayed, detoured, or thwarted. It is immutable unchangeable and fixed. God is sovereign over all things, nature and nations, animals and angels, the devil and demons, wonderful people, wicked people, even disease and death. God's love and mercy and grace and justice and wrath are all sovereign and are administered according to his decretive will. To borrow from St. Augustine, the will of God is the necessity of all things. Put another way, what God wills will happens, and what happens is according to God's will. This is what the Bible means by God's will of decree. For example, Ephesians 1.11 clearly teaches God's will of decree. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things, listen carefully, according to the counsel of his will. God works out everything, everything. The big picture, the little details, and all points in between according to his own wise and good sovereign purposes. Think of Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. God micromanages and meticulously manages our lives. He doesn't merely engage us regarding major issues in our life. He knows the smallest sparrow and the number of hairs on our head. And for some of us, that's not too many. And he ne nothing falls to the ground, either hair on our head or a bird, without his notice in accordance to his sovereign will. You see, the sovereignty of God is just not for the big picture of stuff. 
God is not an absentee landlord. We're not deists for heaven's sakes. God oversees his creation. He providentially rules and governs his creation and brings it to his appointed end. And while for us on this side of uh, heaven, it looks to us terribly confusing sometimes. Can't, can't you think that Paul must have wondered sitting in the prison for two years, not being able to go out and do another missionary journey or plant some more churches? Perhaps he wanted to go further east into Asia. Perhaps he wanted to go north. Uh, I'm sure he had all kinds of ideas about how God could best use him at this particular time in his life. But where is he? He's sitting in jail for something he didn't do. And the charges, he'd already been tried a couple of times. And he's still sitting there. And I imagine Paul had to think long and hard, wouldn't I be more useful? It's like John Bunyan who was arrested and served eight years in prison and, and he had such a, a vibrant ministry in the 17th century. And here he is in prison. And you know what? One of the greatest books ever produced in English literature, Pilgrim's Progress, was written during those eight years. Paul sits in prison, but we're going to find out that he wrote a lot of letters to churches that we have in our Bible today. And so that God put him there. But I'm sure he must have struggled with that. God's sovereignty is full of irony and stretches the boundaries of our comprehension. For example, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, we have already seen, For truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These people, now this is how God's sovereignty works. It's called the doctrine of concurrence, which means people are free to do whatever they desire and want to do. The only thing they're not free to do is move toward God unless he draws them. But they are free to do what they want to do. And so these people murdered, crucified Jesus because they wanted to. And yet at the same time, these people unwittingly fulfilled the sovereign plan of God. The most heinous act that has ever happened in the universe. Shocking as it may sound. The greatest act of evil ever perpetrated on the first face of the earth was, was the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God, but it took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. It wasn't as if there was some kind of failure in the death of Christ and, and that God looked over the banister of heaven nervously chewing his nail saying, I really wish they wouldn't do that to my son. No! The offering up of Jesus Christ was God propitiating his own wrath against our sin by placing it on his son. And all these people did it for evil. They did it to crucify him, to finish him, to end him. And all they did was fulfill the will of God. What a glorious God we serve. He's bigger than we know that he is. You should be coming to Sunday school or you should be watching Sunday school this time around because Mark Anderson's teaching on the attributes of God. And the more you read them, the more you understand that God 
is sovereign over all because of who he is. The sovereignty of God is intensely personal. The psalmist says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of these. The psalmist tells us, Our life unfold, open and close according to God's providence. As the crafters of the Heidelberg Catechism put it so eloquently back in the 16th century, providence is the almighty and everlasting present power of God by which he upholds as with hands heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Think about Isaiah, where in chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God knows all things, and God sovereignly superintends all things, and God's sovereignty is absolute. It is from before the creation of the world. It is the ultimate determination over all things. It cannot be overturned. The truth should leave us lost in wonder, love, and praise if God is our Father. Yet not everyone embraces the classical view of God's sovereignty. And to my amazement, I see that often in churches where people do not recognize if God is not sovereign, He's not God. Have you ever thought about that? That means He's submitting to or controlled by something or someone else. And if God is not sovereign, He is not God. If there's one molecule in the universe, one electron, even getting smaller, in the universe that's floating around out from under his control, God is not sovereign, God is not God. But he is God. And the godness of God is his sovereignty. Now that can either bring you a great deal of hope or make you scared to death, depending on which side of the fence you're standing on. But let's play what if for a second. If God is not absolutely sovereign, then who or what is? Sometimes considering the alternative is both illuminating and disturbing. What are we left with if we deny this fundamental truth of the Bible? How about something like chance or fate or some variation of demigods, that is lesser beings emanating from the universe? Everything would be random and capricious with no order or pattern. What are we left with if we deny this bed bedrock truth? Any talk or destiny or future would be absurd. Life would be a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's what nihilism is, which is a very popular postmodern philosophical view that we come from nothing, we're going nowhere when we die, 
have the guts to admit at least, if you believe we came from no one and we're going nowhere to die, then life has absolutely no meaning at all right now. It's absurd. Tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury. There could be no coherence or meaning in life. Life wouldn't fit together. Prayer would be utter nonsense and a waste of time. Hope would be swallowed up in despair. There would be no purpose in life, no heaven when you die, no reason for your birth, no meaning in between. We would all be nihilist. The problem of evil would be unsolvable. To deny the sovereignty of God is to open up Pandora's box or the proverbial can of worms. If God is not sovereign, God is not God. And if God is not God, then there is no God. And if there is no God, nothing matters. Nothing. Let us eat, drink, and be merry and join in the Epicurean feast for tomorrow we may die and go into the nothingness. I've heard celebrities, which by the way, I think when you listen to them, you lose IQ points. But I have heard celebrities, and I'm being nice when I'm saying that. I love them all in Jesus. But I've heard them interviewed, and they say, well, what's going to happen to you when, I, when you die? Well, I'll just go into the nothingness. Excuse me. Does that bring you any comfort? Does that nurture in you any sense of peace or security or help? Now, I don't think truth has to work to be true. I, I'm not a pragmatist. But by the same token, think about a universe in which there is no God, in which everything is random. Then some of the uh, crises that are being touted today about what's going to happen to the world if we don't get busy doing something are probably more viable. But this world ain't ending. Sorry to use that, I'm from the South. But this world ain't ending until God determines its time. And so, we as believers, however, know something else. We know God is sovereign because the Word of God, the witness of the Spirit, the outworking of His plan in history, as well in our own lives, is true. The truth is as rock-solid comfort in our lives. What are some of the comforts we receive because we know God is sovereign? God's sovereignty is not the impersonal rule of a tyrant king. The God who holds the whole world in his hands, listen carefully, is my Father who regards me with joy, adores me, and regards me with delight. He's not some impersonal micromanager of the universe. He's my Abba Papa. That's who he is. And he cares about me. He's invested in me. He was willing to deliver his own son up for us. The perfect, righteous Jesus. And to die for us in order to welcome us into his favor. And so we don't have an impersonal it in the heavens. We have a God who is sovereign and adores us. And since God is sovereign, every moment of our lives is filled full of meaning. And that is the only reason they're filled full of meaning. 
There are no wasted moments. There is no wasted time. There are no wasted experiences. God is sovereign. You ought to be jumping up and down in here. I ought to have to tell you to calm down and sit down if you're listening to what I'm saying today. Since God is sovereign, every moment of our lives is filled with meaning. Nothing that touches my life is insignificant. We are not left to blind fate or winds of chance. We have an anchor for our souls. We have an immovable rock to stand upon. Life has meaning and coherence because it is working. It is the working out in space and time His eternal gracious plan. God is sovereign, God has a plan, and believe you me, he's working his plan, and nobody can stop him. You can take all the power of this world, aim it to where you think God is, and shoot it, and he wouldn't even have to take a fingernail to swat it out of the way. He could cause this place to cease to be by one word out of his mouth. But the good news for us as believers in Jesus Christ is the sovereign God of the universe is my Abba Father. We live with the security in the face of things that we do not understand because we know He does understand and that He has told us over and over He is for us and not against us. That's what I remember the most about my Father. My father, I'd go play a baseball game, and I was a pretty good baseball player. Uh, I hate to say it, but it's true. I was a pretty good baseball player. I'm not bragging, as Dizzy Dean says. If you can do it, it ain't bragging. And so I went to uh, bat playing baseball, and I batted five times in the ball game. I hit a home run, a triple, a double, a single, and I struck out. When I walked into the house... My dad said, well, you had a decent night, but let me tell you why you struck out. I said, did you see the other four things I did? He said, I don't care about that. So let's talk about why you struck out. You know why you struck out? Because you hit a home run the last time up, and you were jerking your head out looking for the ball to go over the fence. And he, he just kept on and on. But I tell you something, I could take it from my daddy because I knew my daddy was not against me. I knew my daddy was for me. I always knew he was for me. He would take a bullet for me. He would lay down his life for me. Think about that multiplied by a, z a zillion. God is for you. If things are happening in your life at this moment, you can't explain, you can't rationalize, you can't pull it together, you can't see the picture. You just have to submit yourself to his sovereign will and cry out, Abba, Father, comfort me. Show me your glory. Give me, give me the faith I need to trust you in this passage of dark times. There are dark nights of the soul. We all go through it. Godly, God surely assures us that our sufferings are never punishment, but they are redemptive and they deepen our communion with Christ. Do you know why when something happens to me as a Christian, it's not divine punishment? Because all the punishment I deserve has already been taken by Jesus. God will not punish sin twice. So when I'm going through a dark time, what I tend to do is examine myself and go, well, what did I do? I had a friend one time who so much, so much fell apart at once in his life. I leaned over to him as, as I was hugging him, and I said, I don't know what you did. 
but please tell me because I don't want to ever do that. Now that was stupid. Why? I didn't really understand at that point God's sovereignty. I mean, I look at people who are the godliest people I know, much better Christians than I am, and I've seen them suffer stuff that I can hardly speak of. But suffering is not doled out as punishment. Suffering is doled out as a way to work in us that which only He can work through that means, and uh, they are redemptive. That is, they deepen our union and communion with Christ. Eternal life has begun for us and will continue because God is sovereign. Our God is in the heaven. He does what He pleases. Hallelujah! Our God reigns. That is the undercurrent underneath these chapters in the book of Acts. And the reason I did that is because in this case, it's clear as the case is held there's an offer for a change of venue and then the Jews come and make groundless accusations again repeating them and you've got to understand that Festus is sitting there in the chair and his job is basically two things number one I gotta keep the Jews in line especially in Jerusalem because I'm overseeing Judea Secondly, I got to deal with civil unrest because if it happens, I'm in danger of my head being lopped off and me losing everything. So here he is trying to juggle those things. But when he turns to Paul, Paul appeals to Caesar because Paul knows if I go back to Jerusalem, I'm a dead man. Maybe even if I go to Rome and appeal to Caesar, I'm a dead man. But I know this. God said I'm going to Rome I'm going to Rome. God is in a class by himself. I remember my theology teacher, Dr. R.C. Sproul, saying it all the time. God is sui generis, which means in a class by himself. And so we see in this text one last thing that I want to address. Notice how Paul responded to the so-called civil authorities of his day. Now he's already, uh, either now or later, will write Romans chapter 13 where he tells us to submit to the governing authorities because they are established by God. The civil magistrate is God's servant for good. There have been many religions and some Christians who have seen secular governing authority as demonic. And who have said that believers have no responsibility to civic government. But that is not seen in either Romans 13 or Paul's actions here. Paul's appeal to Caesar was not because he had lost confidence in Roman justice, but because he feared that in Jerusalem Roman justice might be overborne by powerful local influences. The fact is that Roman justice, impartial and fair, continually exonerated Paul in the book of Acts. Paul's appeal to Rome shows his confidence that if human justice remains open and fair, it will continue to clear him of these false charges. Behind Paul's confidence in the impartiality of Rome and its justice is a view of something called common grace. That non-Christians filled with moral sense and wisdom, which God has given them, 
by act, the act of creation, he sees civil authorities as being ordained and maintained by God and given general knowledge of truth and justice, even when those same authorities deny God. Now, when Paul says, I want to appeal to Caesar, guess who Caesar is? You have any idea? The guy who fiddled when Rome was burning? Nero who persecuted later in his administration, persecuted Christians, lit them up like torches, dipped them in wax, lit them up as torches for the uh, Colosseum and other things. And so Paul's appealing to, a, a, but at this point in Nero's administration, because of the presence of Seneca, who was a Roman uh, lawyer, brilliant uh, at jurisprudence, had influence over him until... He didn't have influence over him, and that's when he turned bad. But Paul's actions show us that we don't even have to fear bad magistrates. God uses very unchristian rulers as instruments of his purpose. See, he's sovereign. God calls Cyrus, a pagan king, his servant in Isaiah. Paul writes in the same way about Caesar, who at that time was Nero. But look at what happened in Acts 25. Festus is a conciliatory but weak man who's playing politics. But it is these uh, politics that necessitates the drastic action of appealing to Caesar. Yet it is through Festus that God gets Paul to witness in Rome. We had an election, what was it, last year? <laughs> In November? And a lot of people just fell apart. Just completely fell apart. Now, I, it's not my job to tell you what your politics should be. My job to tell you is it really doesn't matter who's there. God is on the throne. You need to believe that. It'll give you a whole lot more peace than political idolatry will. Political idolatry has never worked. Now, there are times when we are to submit to the civil authorities unless they command us to do something God forbids or forbid us to do something God commands. And so far, that hasn't happened. So far. I'm not saying they won't. And so, when the leadership of this church makes certain decisions... Even though we know we will have to answer to you, our primary person to answer to is God. And we have to be obedient to Him. So some of you may not understand why the leadership at Spring Meadows have made certain decisions. And I'm sure we've made mistakes. We are certainly not infallible. But I want you also to know is we know to whom with we have to do. And it's God Himself. And so submission is sometimes called for. We see that work out in Paul's life. Paul accomplishes all kinds of wonderful stuff by going to Rome. Jesus told Pontius Pilate that he was doing nothing but what God had ordained. So there should be no panicky sense that unchristian people in power are somehow exempt from God's control. The times and extents of their power are limited by the absolute sovereignty of God. Paul's actions also show us that we must not just blindly and passively accept the actions. As I said already, there are times when we must petition, times when we must protest, times when we must choose if forbidden to do something God commands or commanded to do something God forbids. 
As the old saying goes, the mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. We can have a sense of respect for the civil magistrates, but we also can be calm about it because God is totally in control. And the pagan king is God's servant, unwitting, of course. But believers are not anxious. Even the pagan king's unbelief and violence will play into God's hand. We do not fear. But since God is judge, we know that the pagan king and his city is also under judgment and will be judged if there is no repentance. So Paul doesn't play politics at Rome. He does precisely what he, as a Roman citizen, should do, and it got him where God wanted him to go. You think about that. God, who's in control? Hallelujah. Glory. God is. You know what? He's never made a mistake. He's never second-guessed himself. We all play Monday morning quarterback. You know what that is? After the game on Sunday, a bunch of people get together who've never played football and, and dissect all the mistakes people made in the game. One of the things I learned about playing football is things happen a lot faster down on the field than they do up where you're sitting and watching. And sometimes you just have to make quick, wise, snap judgments. But we don't need to second-guess God. He is perfect in all in himself and in all his ways. Be confident. Rest in that. Hope in that. Live in that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful and alive, and it speaks to us, and it divides between the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirit, and is a critic of our motives and thoughts. Father, I pray today that we as believers, weak as though we are, would look outside of ourselves and trust in you, because you alone are God. And it gives me the ability to lay my head on the pillow at night and sleep because you got the whole world in your hands. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.